My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagwitz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand specific stories of the war in Ukraine through the lens of the Western bubble. These stories focus on how we are willfully unaware of important aspects because of the bubble that we live in. If you would like to know more about the Western bubble as a concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen uh, to our introduction episode. Um, starting, as always, with uh, housekeeping. Uh, first of all, Balder, it's uh, great to have you back after last week's break. I hope that you're feeling better. Uh, great to be back, Kedaro. Yeah, and I'm feeling absolutely fine. Thank you. All right, perfect. And uh, as announced last week, uh, this week we will be talking uh, about Ukraine again, because this is our second episode we record on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We published the first one on July 7th of this year, where we analyzed in depth the Western attitudes involvement in this conflict. This episode will deal with three developments from the past two months in particular, namely the assassination of Daria Dugina, the bombings of the Nord Stream gas pipelines, and the two missiles fired from Ukrainian territory into Poland, killing two civilians. But before we start with this topic, as always, um, let's move on to question of the week. So this week's question of the week comes from a listener from Madrid. I've noticed the Western skew when it comes to the coverage of China. To what extent could the media provoke worsening relations with Xi? And is it important that we are on good terms with China? Which I think is a very interesting question, especially given uh, the, the new situation in the past uh, two, three days, where from, from China we've now heard a few reports, but a lot of media coverage of uh, COVID protests against uh, the, the very sharp and very intense uh, COVID lockdowns that the Chinese government is imposing on its population. And I think what, what sparked it was um, a, a fire in a building uh, where, where I think about 10 or 12 people died because they couldn't escape their, their apartment in time because uh, of, of COVID barriers. And so we have this very intense coverage of yeah, of that situation in China. And I, I would say this is similar to what we've seen in Iran uh, with the Iran protests, that the Western media is going into somewhat of an overdrive. Yes, this is what the Western media loves doing, right? Picking up on little signs from authoritarian societies that not all is well, and then taking that and hyping, hyping it up in a way uh, with the tone of, ah, finally, the Chinese are about to topple their regime. Finally, they're going to overthrow Xi and establish a brilliant liberal democracy within their own country, which is, of course, a bit of nonsense. Now, it, it should be pointed out that, that China does have some long-term structural problems, and I think that Beijing is heading for a difficult decade, but the, the way that the media in the West responds to these blips, if you like, is um, out of all proportions, right? Uh, Nobody is seriously thinking that this will lead to some kind of revolution within within the country. Especially because we're talking about a few protests in a few different cities with a few hundred participants in a country with 1.4 billion people. Um, this does not really seem to be in proportion. And especially the focus on, on, a, on then again, within these few protests on a few people calling for Xi to step down, uh, that to me is, is when I immediately thought, ah, okay, the, the, the Western media is, is uh, very much inside its own bubble again. Yes, absolutely. Whereas with Iran, the protests are more structural, more widespread. Uh, with respect to China, this is very much the, the Western media trying to sort of make something out of very little, right? Now, what I find fascinating about this, by the way, is the 
enormous hypocrisy. This is the media now going after China for being authoritarian in terms of lockdown. But this is the same media that very happily copied the Chinese model in February, March 2020, when Europe was hit by the COVID wave, right? Uh, all of a sudden, everything they wrote about lockdown in Europe is forgotten. And now the Chinese government is authoritarian for implementing lockdown. The, the hypocrisy is just astounding to anyone with open eyes. So then to answer the, the listener's question, to what extent could this then worsen relations with Xi if the media is talking about this so much? It very much could. So this was more a general question and, and, and it's a very good question because the media um, is a sensitive topic for the Chinese. The Chinese, with their growth over the past 30 years or so, 40 years, they are becoming increasingly confident about who they are on the world stage. They're a major, if not one of the two biggest players on the world stage when it comes to geopolitics. And they want to feel that respect. They want to be respected by the West. They want to know that the West recognizes their right to exist, their, uh, their significant influence, their power. And they've become much more aggressive in demanding that respect from the West. And so whenever the media goes into uh, overdrive with respect to criticizing China, then there's absolutely a backlash. There's a reaction from China against that. Like, oh, the West with their arrogance and their hypocrisy. And then you get all these government statements coming out, basically pointing out all the, the, the bad things that the West has done over the past years, right? So... There's some regimes that don't really care. China absolutely cares about the way it's being perceived in the West, in large part also because it requires the West for its consumer markets, for its economic growth. Mm -hmm. And then moving on to the second part of this question, is it then important that we, and here I think we should uh, differentiate between Europe as the West and maybe the United States as the West, is it important that these two uh, parts of the West are on good terms with China? Yes, and here you very uh, cleverly left out Japan and Australia and South Korea, which is a whole different <laughs> conversation uh, with respect to their relations to China. But um, yes, absolutely. So if you're the United States, you're okay with being in this geopolitical fight with China. You, you, I, you define yourself as being the protector of the world against Chinese aggression and, and, and some antagonism is is all right sort of trying to go back to a cold war scenario like there was with the soviet union in the 20th century for europe it's a different story europe has consistently put itself on the map as yes a liberal western bulwark but one that can play ball with everyone that is not as aggressive as the united states sort of the the nicer version of the united states right it doesn't use its military in the same way um, that that is not as demanding from its partners and so europe has created and they've been doing this quite structurally this idea of europe being the place for the rest of the world to go to to do business if you can't get along with washington surely you can get along with us unfortunately this has now changed because of the war in ukraine and now europe is sort of being pushed back into the transatlantic alliance and uh, that means that they are becoming much more aggressive in their attitude towards China once again, which is a huge mistake, if you ask me. And with this, I think we can then move on to the main topic of today's episode. And as always, we are starting with what are the facts in two minutes? 
Starting with the assassination of Daria Dugina, who was killed in August 2022 in a car bombing on the outskirts of Moscow. She was the daughter of Alexander Dugin, a far-right political philosopher whose political views and support for, for Vladimir Putin she shared. After the initial reactions pointed towards Putin as the one to blame, US intelligence services have since come out pointing towards Ukraine as the assassins. Continuing with the bombings of the two Nord Stream pipelines transporting gas from Russia to Europe, um, the 2022 Nord Stream pipeline sabotage was a series of explosions and subsequent underwater gas leaks that occurred on the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines on September 26th. Since then, separate investigations from Germany, Denmark and Sweden have found that these were in fact explosions. However, no reports about who executed these have been shared yet. Lastly, on the 15th of November, a missile struck the territory of Poland near the border with Ukraine, killing two Polish civilians. The incident occurred during an attack on Ukrainian cities and energy facilities by Russia and marked the first incident of a missile landing and exploding within NATO territory during the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Initial assessments by the United States found that the missile was likely to have been an air defense missile fired by Ukrainian forces at an incoming Russian missile. After this quick factual overview, then let's always start with the next category. What is the bubble? So, Balder, I mean, we've already talked about this topic, uh, so we do not want to necessarily recap the entire bubble, um, the entire Western bubble that the West is in uh, for, for this episode. For the listeners who haven't listened to the uh, episode yet, uh, please do so. It's, a, it's a, one of our best ones, I would say. But then very quickly, uh, a recap. What is the Western bubble with regards to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? It is this idea that automatically the West needs to take a stand needs to be part of the violence, part of the conflict, because it is liberal democracy, i.e. Ukraine, fighting for freedom against Russian authoritarianism. And that creates an idea that we're all in this together, and that even though we are not the ones who are doing the actual fighting, it's Ukrainian soldiers dying, and not German or Spanish soldiers, except for those few personalities that actually went to Ukraine to fight alongside Ukrainians. Um, it is those it is it is the idea that we, despite not being belligerents in the conflict, are still on the side of Ukraine. And as a result, we're no longer seeing the bigger picture. We are no longer trying to analyze what happens and try to play a productive part in finding solutions, in in trying to stop the bloodshed, stop the destruction. Instead, it is about defeating Russia at all costs. And that has all kinds of unfortunate consequences, the most important of which is that in our media and in our political coverage, we are no longer trying to understand what's happening. We're continuously judging. We're judging Ukraine as the good guys. We're judging Russians as the bad guys. And whatever happens, and that's why we're going to talk about these three topics uh, today, Whatever happens, our intuitive reaction is, oh, the Russians are to blame. And that is that means that we're no longer in touch with reality. We are no longer actually understanding. We are instead just acting as if we are part of that war zone and we have to fight the enemy at whatever cost. See, an example of this is, uh, so the listeners know that I, I live in Germany, um, there's now a lot of posters about saving energy, um, and all of them are saying that oh, it's wartime. You know, we have to save energy, and yeah, it's wartime. Uh, however, 
wartime also happened before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was also war in Yemen and there were war in Ethiopia and so on. Um, there's still no war within the European Union, um, but it is wartime. So now we have to save energy. You know? We have, need to take actions based on the feeling that there's war. And it's a psychologically very powerful instrument that, right? When you say we're at war, especially if you don't pay any price, because again, it's the Ukrainians who are fighting for their for their independence, for their freedom, if you like. It's, it's not the Germans or the Spanish. But by saying it is wartime, you sort of open a whole new path towards drastic measures towards saying okay we now um you know we all need to suffer through this and yeah prices are high but what are politicians to do instead of actually trying to say hang on hang on we can breathe in and out our houses are not being bombed if you live in kiev then you've got more immediate concerns but if you live in berlin your house is not going to get bombed anytime soon so let's take a step back and let's look at how can we find real solutions to the problems rather than just clouding it by this idea that we're fighting this dark enemy with the face of Putin um, that we all associate with evil dictatorship. And I think that this is a good moment um, when we're talking about the mistakes uh, of NATO um, to move into the next category. What is the problem? And so the three damages we already outlined, uh, the ones we want to talk about today, um, obviously, the assassination of Daria Dugina, the Nord Stream uh, pipeline sabotages and bombings, and uh, missiles shot into Poland. However, we want to start uh, chronologically, and uh, so we're starting with the uh, assassination of Daria Dugina. Um, and I think before we kind of go into the reactions of the assassination itself, it would be interesting to first talk a little bit about Daria Dugina herself. And she was one of the individuals uh, sanctioned by the West. Uh, so I, I it was the United States, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada who all imposed sanctions on her right after the invasion of Ukraine, so early March. Um, so she was part of that long list of Russian individuals um, that were somehow tied to the, to, to the government uh, that were then sanctioned. Um, but again, none of this uh, really explains why she would be a target. Uh, I mean, her job was the editor-in-chief of a, of a Russian well, news website. Yeah, no, and, and her father was more of an ideologue. You can say with a relative amount of certainty that, that it was an accidental murder, that, uh, that the idea was that her father should have been murdered. That's The father was the target. She got in the wrong car at the wrong moment and a car bomb exploded. Uh, the, but even her father, even if you were to look at Alexander Dugin, Yes, he's an absolutely extreme Russian nationalist who has influence on the way that Russia operates and Russia thinks and the media talks about things. He has the ear of Putin as far as we understand. Uh, but surely that in itself cannot be a reason to assassinate someone. So the obvious, Daria Dugina is very far away from, should be very far away from any kind of assassination attempt but even her father are we really going to start killing people just because their perspectives are seen as extreme is that is that the world that we want to live in see and this is already going into the direction um i mean what i read out in the fact sheet that u.s intelligence services believe that it was in fact ukraine who assassinated her however the immediate reaction within the west um did not point towards Ukraine. It pointed towards Putin as the person behind the assassination. Well, and this is exactly the bubble that we just mentioned, right? We have created a scenario in our minds, in our hearts, 
so sociological, psychological, where news about Ukraine will only sort of penetrate our thinking if it is reinforcing the idea that the Russians are the bad guys, Ukrainians are good guys. And we know that good guys don't kill innocent, and maybe I should put innocent in quotation marks if you want to argue that she's extreme in her thinking, but innocent women. Good guys do not assassinate innocent women, or men for that matter. And therefore it must be Putin, right? Because Putin is a bad guy, and bad guys kill innocent people. So our initial reaction, even though it didn't make any sense to think that Russian intelligence services somehow would murder her or her father, that just, it just does not compute. Um, that was automatically our instinctual reaction. And it shows the danger of the bubble that we live in. That shows the danger of living in a world where you're no longer analyzing, you're no longer thinking about things. You're actually just going with your heart. And your heart tells you that Ukraine are brave freedom fighters who would not hurt innocent civilians. The Russians, on the other hand, hurt innocent civilians all the time. So that would make sense. So you had um, an event where, um, so, I mean, something horrible happened. The immediate Western reaction was it was Putin. Later on, the West found out, okay, most likely it wasn't Putin, it was Ukraine. And then... Uh, have you heard about this since? No, have you? I mean, have have we heard anything about? Ah, okay. I mean, the Ukraine should not have done this. What was there any condemnation from from the West um, towards towards, yeah, Ukrainian actions? No, no, we don't condemn Ukraine. They're fighting a, f uh, a brave fight, and whatever they do is legitimate. Um, we will we never be critical because we're in a war with them, and we cannot be critical of our war allies. No, no, it it went basically the moment it became clear, the moment that United States said, look, we believe that this has been Ukraine. The media stopped covering it. People stopped talking about it because it didn't fit into our narrative. I hope the people listening to us now understand how incredibly dangerous this is and how this leads to really, really bad long-term outcomes because it means that we are simplifying a very complex world into black and white and we do horrible things under the guise of we're fighting the good fight. And that is not the kind of world that you want to live in. Because there was this other development um, or situation that happened over the past few months. Um, the Nord Stream bombings or sabotage. I mean, it was bombs sabotaging a pipeline. Um, and here, what I thought was very interesting was you had these explosions. There were gas leaks, uh, very impressive images all over the media. Um, and then the immediate reaction was obviously, ah, okay, now Putin is also bombing, bombing infrastructure. Um, there wasn't a lot of talk about this. Uh, I mean, I think that politicians in general handled it well, saying that, oh, we don't know yet who was this, so we're going to launch an investigation. And so these pipelines were in the waters of Denmark, Germany, and Sweden. However, what was very interesting is that um, they didn't launch a joint investigation as it would be fit for EU members and soon to be NATO allies. Right. In the, initially, they stated that they would, right? Initially, it was a joint, a joint effort, but very quickly that fell apart. And now what you hear is that the Swedish, Swedish prosecutor produces some outcomes, then Denmark does it, then, then Germany also pitches in somehow. 
and, there, always and, late to the party. Don't yeah, and, but the, the the joint after an initial statement, we're gonna work together to figure this out. The joints fell apart very quickly, right? Uh, going back to one thing you said about politicians reacting well, I agree because e- but. This was a case where even for them, it was a step too far to automatically blame Putin because it just didn't make any sense once again, right? Um, at least with, with Dugina, you know, it, it, we don't know much about it and, and we can you can create kind of a vibe of assassination that, that sort of seems to fit Putin's MO and those kinds of things. But with, this Nord, with Nord Stream, it seems incredibly unlikely that the Kremlin would be responsible for this. And therefore, politicians said, okay, now I have to be careful because I don't want to be to look like an idiot. And they were absolutely right because there is very, you know, there it's it's it is it is it is very unlikely that we can just jump on the bandwagon, obviously. I mean especially given that at the NATO summit in uh, June, so so very late June uh, of this year you had uh, NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg uh, say that a deliberate attack against allies' critical infrastructure will be met with a united and determined response. So this is, you know, if, if you're then very quickly blaming Russia um, on this, then you, then there, there has to be a, whatever a united and determined response is. Exactly, and this is this is part of the problem of that 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 vibe, if you like, that bubble, that environment that we have already created, right? Where you, where we are very close to going very wrong in our world uh, because we haven't, even though we all say about, oh yeah, nobody wants World War III, we have to ask it. We're very close to, to, to bad things. And that's, that's why we have to be very careful in our reaction to these kinds of uh, situations uh, because of the vibe that has been created. And NATO in that sense is not at all helping because everyone obviously knows, I mean, this is not a secret, it's completely obvious. NATO is on the side of Ukraine. They're not actively involved in the actual violence because if they were, that would be a trigger for something much worse. But they do everything they can, including providing information, providing um, weaponry, providing uh, training and, and money to Ukraine to fight the Russians. That becomes a very, very scary situation when, when all of a sudden there is this sense that Russia is striking back. And speaking of Russia, so the Russian reaction to this um, was Russian intelligence then came out and said, oh, we believe it was the British, which um, leads us to a situation where obviously we don't know who it was. There's no conclusive evidence yet from no side. Um, so the only thing we can do is create scenarios. So I think what would be helpful here is to have a quick, you could almost call it stakeholder analysis of who who could blow, uh, like who has the capacity to blow these pipelines up and who has an interest to blow these up and then see whether uh, we conclude that Russia might be the candidate with the most capacities and interest to actually blow this up. Yeah, so it was... It, it's obviously geopolitically and with respect to spe- specifically the war, it is useful for the Kremlin to to blame uh, Britain, right? I mean, obviously, that, that, that makes a lot of sense for them, even if Britain didn't do it. Uh, Russia wants Britain or the United States to, to be responsible for this. Um, but once you start creating those scenarios, without knowing which one is true, it's perfectly okay to say this is a more likely scenario than other. And I'll tell you this much, 
if if someone said, you know, someone with full information came to me and said, Balder, I know who did it. It is either the Kremlin or it is London. Well, my money, if, if, if those are the only options, my money would absolutely be on London, right? So let's 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 go through this. Um, who do we start with? I would say we start with the most obvious candidate, um, Russia, and here differentiating between the Kremlin and Gazprom. Right. So for the Kremlin to blow up this pipeline, what, what would that actually lead to? It would lead to them no longer having a... Um, economic weapon against Europe, it would reduce their chances of in the future re-establishing some kind of cooperation with Europe. What would they, so those would be some costs, what would they benefit from it? I have no idea. I have no idea what the Kremlin would get out of this sabotage. I honestly can't think of anything. I mean, the only explanation that I've heard for the motives Putin could have is that he was under a lot of pressure um, internally to reinstate gas flows because Russia is hurting because they're not receiving any any money from this. So by him blowing it up, um, the, the, um, it would be impossible for Russia to reinstate these flows and he could basically continue this pressure on Europe or this punishment of Europe. And so he would need to, he would need to backtrack. But that's to be honest, that's one explanation, but I don't find it to be the most convincing one. No, and it it, it would be it I th- it would be misinterpreting the power dynamics within the Kremlin. It would be very unlikely that 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 Putin would give into it because it gives away it gives away a um, a important weapon that he has not just now but also towards the future. Russia does not. I mean, obviously, Russia is suffering because of this war. I mean, not as much as Ukraine, but Russia is absolutely hurting because this has been a really really bad project for them and Putin needs a way out at some point and and this wouldn't work now if you're then going down that in that direction then it would be much more likely that there are actually elements lower down within economic society within the oil sector or in the gas sector that might be interested somehow in doing this um that's that want to put extra pressure on, on Russian policymaking, um, they, we don't know to what extent there are factions within Moscow or outside of Moscow that are trying to undermine the the official policymaking by the Kremlin. Now, that if it is the Russians, it's very unlikely to be Putin himself or the Kremlin itself. It's much more likely to be these other elements. See, and here, let's move on to the next uh party or the parties that would have an interest uh, in there or the capacity to do so, um, the United States and the United Kingdom. Right. Um, now, again, what's, what's very interesting here is that if you um, notice that the UK and the US, the moment you mention them as potential perpetrators of this act, and it would be an, a big deal, right? Them sabotaging infrastructure of their own allies in territory of Sweden, very clearly its own allies. Um, that would be a big deal. But people act as if that is some kind of crazy conspiracy theory, as if somehow the idea of the United States or the UK doing something like that is outside of any rational analysis. And you see in articles, conspiracy theories abound about whatever. No, it's let's analyze it. It's not a given. We don't have evidence that they have done it. 
But we know from the war on terror, for example, the infamous war on terror, that the United States and the United Kingdom, George W. Bush and Tony Blair, repeatedly went against um, promises made towards European allies, repeatedly undermined European allies behind their backs, hoping that it wouldn't be found out with black sites and all those kinds of things uh, in their in their fight against Al-Qaeda and their fight against ISIS later. It is not a crazy idea that a country like the United States were to do this. Have they done it? We do not know. But they're certainly top of the list of the beneficiaries of what happened. Why? Because the United States has been very worried about Europe drifting apart. They see the war in Ukraine as a chance for Europe to move away from Russia. They felt that Germany and some other countries became became way too chummy with Russia. Now they want to basically disconnect the two parts, right? They want to disconnect Russia from Europe and they want to create a reliance of Europe on the United States. That is not any secrets. That's obvious. That's necessary for a transatlantic alliance. The transatlantic alliance and NATO exist with this implicit agreement that Europe supports the United States in exchange for protection. What could be better for the United States than disconnect oil and gas flows between Russia and Western Europe? So they absolutely, whoever did it, the United States absolutely benefited from this. And the United Kingdom, to a certain extent as well, obviously, even if they don't, they often carry out missions for the United States, as we well know. And so there's another player that definitely has the capacities, um, but I'm not sure about the interest to do so, um, China. Right. And there, so even though one could argue that China, for China, this would be interesting from the the other perspective, right? China sees an opportunity here, how quickly times have changed, to in some ways turn Moscow into puppets. Now I have to be a bit careful there because Russia is an awfully big and powerful country with 6,000 nuclear missiles. It's not your usual puppet. Uh, But the 6,000 nuclear warheads, I should say. Uh, But China certainly is trying to take advantage from the situation by making Russia reliant on China. So just like the United States would like Western Europe to be reliant on them, China wants to do the same. And again, they would have been interested in disconnecting the economic ties between the two parts. So from that perspective, it kind of makes sense vaguely. Now, there are two differences with respect to the scenario of the US or the UK doing it. Um, And very important differences. First of all, it's not really China's MO, China's modus operandi. China hasn't shown any willingness to go that far in its foreign policy making. China has been nowhere near as aggressive militarily um, in the way that it connects to the rest of the world. Whereas the United States and the United Kingdom have a very long history of using military means to accomplish their goals, China hasn't. And the second, just as important reason, even if they wanted to, operationally, it's much more complex for China to get to the Baltic. You know, the Baltic is awfully far away and they don't have the infrastructure necessary. They would have to probably use a third party to then accomplish it. Uh, they, they, and how would that work? Operationally, that seems incredibly far-fetched. Again, unlike the scenario of the United States slash UK, who have all the necessary means to do it. If the UK and the United States wanted to do it, they could easily, easily do it. Either with submarines or in... uh, Keep in mind also 
that we're talking here about the Baltic. In a situation where Ukraine and Russia are fighting, there are few places on Earth that are as well monitored right now by NATO as the Baltic Sea, for obvious reasons. The Baltic has always been an area of contention between Russia and the West, continuously Russian airplanes invading NATO space and then them being intercepted by Swedish fighters or anything like that. That has gone into overdrive now. So for either Russia or China to somehow sabotage installations in the Baltic means that they have some kind of way to escape this incredible NATO intelligence machine, which seems very unlikely. Who has this ability? The United Kingdom and the US, because they know exactly what NATO does at any given time, obviously. Um, the next player who I would say has an interest, but I'm doubting their capacities, would be Ukraine. Right. Ukraine certainly might be very interested in this for the obvious reasons. I don't think that we need to explain that. Um, it would be if they did it, if they if if the if that scenario were true. Besides the operational difficulty, because again, it's not necessarily easy to do what they did. Um, is it possible? Sure, uh, Ukraine would would find it slightly easier than China, but only slightly easier probably. Um, maybe with the help of Poland, or you know, if we if we start speculating something like that. Uh, that's possible, but it would be a hugely risky operation for Ukraine. Because if they were to find out, and we know that we live in this world where you, everything about Ukraine is sort of whitewashed because they're fighting the good fight. But if it were if if they were found out to do that, that would make it so difficult for NATO to keep on supporting them, because then Ukraine is actually attacking NATO, literally. So if that scenario were true it would be, let's call it bold, but that, that, that word doesn't do it quite uh, justice. And, and just because I want this to be a comprehensive stakeholder analysis, uh, what is the interest uh, of Sweden, Denmark, Germany doing it themselves? Right. Uh, not, not a lot, to be honest. Um, Germany, zero. Why would Germany ever do this? I mean, to to ease, basically to to get rid of uh, internal opposition, to turn it back on, to say, ah, we can't because Russia blew it up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Unlikely, I, but my understanding, and this is your area of expertise, Dario, but my understanding is that German politics doesn't work like that. Uh, I don't know Not if yet. there are any rogue elements in the German intelligence agencies, but I, I, I very much doubt it. Uh, I would also doubt the capacity. The German military is not known to have capacity. <laughs> um, and, and the other two, I mean, we're talking about Sweden here. Come on. I don't think we need to bore the listeners with, uh, with discussing the ability of Sweden. I mean, technically, they would have the ability, but come on. This is Sweden. They're, they're lovely people. Uh, now, what, what I find really interesting, though, is this issue of them not working together, Sweden and Denmark and Germany not working together. And, and, and a very likely scenario here is that they have a disagreement about where to take the investigation. If they were somehow convinced, all three, Germany, Denmark and Sweden, that Russia was behind this, then they wouldn't have much problem working together into one big, comprehensive, holistic investigation. But because of what we just said, it's very likely that it's not Russia. And there the interests start 
going in different directions, uh, Sweden would be much more likely to look into the scenario of the US-UK doing this. Denmark and Germany would be much more hesitant about that. And so the reason it, it would be, I'm sure a book will be written about this in 10 or 20 years time. The reason why they can't work together in any effective way is very likely because one of them is actually looking at these scenarios and saying, hang on, it actually makes sense for the US and the UK to do that. At the very minimum, we should look into that. And the others are saying, no, 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 no. Let's not go there. I, we refuse to go there because whatever the outcome, it's bad. Either it's not true and then we've spent a lot of time annoying our allies or it is true. And all of a sudden we have to accuse our biggest ally of attacking our own installations. That is not, that is not something acceptable politically or geopolitically to where we are. I wish, I wish that we would get more journalistic uh, investigative journalism into this um, because there's a really interesting story here. See, and this is, and I think we're almost discovering a pattern here. Um, the initial response to, I mean, to the sabotage was, oh, Russia did it, or Putin did it. Why did Putin do it? I haven't read a lot of stakeholder analyses, more or less, the way we just did it, of what is the interest of all the players, what are the capabilities of them. Um, and it is very interesting to see that the West very quickly went silence over, silent over this. Similar to the to the assassination of Daria Dugina, and a, a very big initial reaction, and then it's you know out of the media cycle of you know there's just there's another news cycle something else interesting happened, and we're not even going back to it, um, actually answering any of these questions that are still unanswered. Absolutely, and let me read. So here there's an um, let me read from an article from October third from uh, the Brookings Institution, and here it says. Uh, it, it goes through some of the scenarios. This was very early on, right? Uh, just after it happened. And it says, the US did it conspiracy on popular American podcasts. So it's talking about that some American pop podcasts discussed whether the United States could have been responsible for it. But notice how straight away it gets put into conspiracy. No, it would be conspiracy if you and I were to say, oh, we know that the United States did it because of this, this and that and all the other evidence be damned. But just analyzing the likelihood of the United States doing it, saying, is it possible for the United States to do that, is not a conspiracy. It's basic, good analysis. And until someone gives us evidence of one party doing it, it's perfectly all right to analyze the likelihood of certain people doing it. But instead, we believe that somehow the good guys cannot do it. And the moment you open that can of worms, you're engaged in a conspiracy. So what happens? Just like with Dugina, Russia must have done it. Oh, that doesn't really make much sense. Okay, then we're really uncomfortable with who else could have done it. Done it, So we'll just move on and we'll forget about it. Again, this is so damaging to our understanding of the world and to our policymaking that people need to wake up a little bit to this, to this, this idea that we cannot dismiss options just because we might not like, you know, the outcomes. And the third situation um, where this happened the last few months uh, was then obviously these uh, the missiles that were fired from Ukrainian territory into Poland um, and killing two Polish civilians. And I, I remember that the reactions, especially the night when it happened, 
I mean, I thought, uh, based on the media, we were heading into World War III. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, to, to actually start with this, we, we, uh, we're going to play a quick soundbite from Sky News from that night. So I'm bringing you uh, the latest on that uh, developing story we uh, brought you from Poland because, you remember, uh, we told you that a senior US intelligence official says that Russian missiles have crossed the border into Poland, which is a NATO member, killing two people. And, of course, uh, NATO membership confers uh, protection for uh, any nation. It means that uh, an attack on one member of NATO is an attack on all of them. Uh, of course, Ukraine is, is not a NATO member, which is why uh, NATO has not come to uh, its support militarily in terms of boots on the ground. Well, we are hearing that uh, the Polish Prime Minister has ordered an emergency meeting of their National Security Bureau this evening and, uh, of course, will bring you any more developments as they come in. And here you can hear how immediately the news anchor goes towards NATO Article 5, um, where one, uh, an attack on, on one NATO member is an attack on all NATO members and therefore um, well, triggers an, an immediate attack from all NATO members onto the attacker, which is incredibly dangerous rhetoric um, based on what we've analyzed before the patterns, given that this would mean World War III. And it's, it's, it's also so strange to me because... That evening, I believe it was a Tuesday evening, uh, there were uh, some messages, you know, I'm part of some email chains and some WhatsApp groups and all that, and some messages went about this and uh, people were saying, oh, what happened there and all that. These are people in the know, these are policymakers or, or analysts like myself. No one thought that this was that these were Russian missiles. No, but the media jumped on straight away on the bandwagon. So people who were in the know said, look, this can't be Russian missiles. And... In the really, really, really strange case that it was a Russian missile, then uh, it was clearly a complete fluke and, and, and there, there's nothing to worry about there. But the media went for 12 hours into overdrive, as we just heard, um, also fed by the Polish reaction for those first 12 hours, right? So, and that shows this incredible danger in creating this high tension scenario where everyone believes we are just one step away from a war with Russia, which which we have been feeding for all of these months by, by making it sound as if we're basically already fighting Russia. And there's just, we require one trigger to go over the edge. It's, it's, it's astounding and it's incredibly frightening. Not the idea of Russia attacking us because believe us, Russia is not going to attack Poland. It's just not happening. But our sensitivity and the likelihood of us overreacting towards things. So the, the soundbite also talked about the Polish reaction. And yeah, so Duda immediately, the, the Polish president immediately called uh, together the National Security Council. He put the military on high alert and he called on NATO for Article 4, which is, I, I mean, I think an easy way to describe the, the, the smaller brother of Article 5. Uh, it calls for immediate... Um, an immediate conference between all NATO members discussing the situation and the security situation. Um, so yeah, from a Polish side, you have a reaction. Um, then you had the Russians uh, who said, this is a deliberate provocation aimed at escalating the situation, which out of all the statements we're going to hear, to be honest, is the most rational one. Um, this is dangerous because it could escalate the situation. Um, and then we had uh, the reaction of Ukraine, where... Um, President Zelensky blamed Russia for the incident and uh, basically described that a Russian missile hit Poland, uh, 
and call it an infringement upon collective security and a significant escalation. Yeah, this is this is Zelensky once again playing the game of um, sort of pretending that they're already kind of part of NATO, right? Which is not a crazy idea given the NATO support that is provided to Ukraine. Um, and, and using the kind of language, Zelensky loves to use the sort of kind of language that he knows NATO uses. And then, and so identifying himself with one saying, we are Poland, Poland is us. And now it's completely clear that Russia is fighting all of us because from Zelensky's perspective, which I still don't really understand what he's playing, playing at here from a Ukrainian perspective, but Zelensky desperately wants to drag NATO more into the conflict. Now, why I'm saying that I don't understand that is that in this hypothetical scenario, again, which we should stop worrying about because Russia is certainly not going to trigger it. And I, I very much would like to think NATO doesn't trigger it either. In this hypothetical scenario where actual World War III breaks out between NATO and Russia, Ukraine will be flattened, you know, Ukraine will be the main battlefield. So if you're the president of Ukraine, why would you want that? You're not going to benefit from that at all. See, and then just the next day, and I also don't understand why you would want that at all, but the next day, then the presidential advisor to Zelensky tweeted that European countries should close the sky. Remember the no-fly zone from March uh, earlier this year that would mean an active and direct involvement of NATO in this conflict. Then um, the National Security and uh, Defense Council of Ukraine, he then claimed that there was evidence of a Russian trace in the explosion without giving any details. Um, Zelensky then a few days later said that there was no doubt that it was not our missile and that Ukraine should not uh, should basically be given access to the site of the explosion. And by this time, you already have U.S. intelligence saying that there's a high probability that this was a U Ukrainian air defense missile that was basically trying to intercept a Russian missile and then mis misfired and landed in Poland, killing two civilians. Right, and then very quickly followed up by the Polish intelligence agency saying the same thing and the Polish government saying the same thing, uh, right? So the United States is one thing, but the moment Poland, so Poland backtracked desperately on its initial panicked reaction. Um, and at that moment... If you're Zelensky, if you're Kiev, you should know that the game is up, that you cannot pretend anymore that this was some kind of Russian provocation against Poland or a Russian attack on Poland. And yet, he didn't give up, did he? No, because, I mean, he, I don't know, can you call this backtracking? Because on November 17th, Zelensky then said that, oh, I don't know what happened, we don't know for sure. The world does not know, but I'm sure that there was a Russian missile. I'm sure that we fired from air defense systems, which I would say you can, you could, if you, I mean, you could say that this was him backtracking. Yeah, it's basically changing your words a little bit in order to make it a little bit less extreme because you kind of know that the game is up, but you don't want to admit it yet, right? Because Zelensky in the long term is, is hurting his his credentials here, right? He's hurting his ability to be seen as a voice of reason in the world, if he can still be seen as such. Um, the only thing that I can think of is that Ukraine desperately wants NATO to get involved because they believe the moment NATO gets involved, Putin will withdraw. The Kremlin will say, okay, we can't fight NATO, which they can't, that's true. But that is, that is a very scary game to play because... If Putin doesn't withdraw, then we are actually in World War III. Um, yeah, 
we, we would be. And the last reaction I want to look at is the reaction of NATO itself, so official NATO statements that said that ultimately it is Russia that is to blame, which I find interesting, right? Because it was a Ukrainian air defense missile, but ultimately it's Russia to blame because, you know, without Russia, Ukraine would never have to fire that defense missile. Yeah, it's, it's I mean... It, it would be funny if it if, if if it wasn't so serious, right? So according to this, whatever happens, whatever is being done in Ukraine, anything that happens in the end is because of Putin. Well, yeah, okay. So if Putin hadn't invaded, then this <laughs> these uh, Ukrainian air defense missiles wouldn't have landed on Polish soil. That is that is that is correct. That is <laughs> that is a, a logical statement. But if, that would if take. Putin, if- if Putin hadn't invaded, Daria Dugina might still be alive. And if Putin hadn't invaded, the Nord Stream pipelines would still be intact. Yeah, exactly. The so basically, if that is your argument, then you know, um, if 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 Ukraine drops a nuclear explosive device on a Russian city, then it's Putin's fault because Putin should never have invaded. Well, I can play that game as well. If 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 the West hadn't messed with uh, Yeltsin's Russia in the 1990s, Putin wouldn't have gotten to power and therefore Putin would never have invaded. I mean, once you go down that route, then nobody's ever responsible for anything. A serious person cannot make a statement about ultimately Russia is to blame. Yeah. Okay. In in, in we've now completely abandoned any ability to rationally analyze the situation anymore. And then which is, once again, and I think now we have found our pattern here, is immediately the reaction to this incident was very big. And then as soon as US intelligence calmed the world down, and as soon as the Polish calmed the world down as well, nobody paid attention to it anymore. We basically called it an accident. Okay, you know, nothing serious happened. Two people died. We mourned the death of these two people. but then silence went away. And the fact that Zelensky just uh, tried to involve NATO into this conflict was uncommented on, you know, because why, why would you? So immediately the, the West went silent again. Yeah, and it, it would have been nice, for example, for to for Ukraine to just issue an apology saying, hey, obviously we didn't want this. Uh, this was an accident, horrible accident. Uh, Zelensky phoning the victims of uh, the families of the two victims, for example, <laughs> just say, look, I'm re- really sorry that this happened. Uh, obviously, we 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 understand your loss, and and uh, we hope um, you know we hope to avoid this in the future. But nothing like that. So there was no conversation about it afterwards. Once again, because we don't like the idea of Ukraine doing anything wrong, uh, and if we can't blame Russia, let's then just move on. There's no fun to be had. And with this, moving on to the last category, what now? Now that we have seen this pattern in three different cases and that this pattern is clearly part of the western bubble um Boulder, what do we what do we do here where do we go from now well the the sort of cliche word here is to de-escalate right so we need to we need to stop following patterns that make really bad things more likely um, we need to stop creating an environment in which absolutely disaster can strike if we're not careful. And part of that environment is you know, not accepting this pattern of something happens, West blames Russia, Russia says they didn't do it, turns out they might be right, West going silent. That kind of pattern is not conducive to bringing a solution to the Ukraine conflict or avoiding 
further destruction, ver further violence between the two parties. This means understanding the difference between analysis, actual understanding of certain situations, whether it's what happened to Dugina or whether it's what happened to Nord Stream or whether, whether it's what happened with the uh, missiles on Poland, and justifying. You can absolutely understand what's happening without all the time needing to judge who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. That's what you want from a well-functioning society, but from a well-functioning media and a well-functioning political system. Show us understanding, show us as many facts as you can, rather than being on this hype train of fighting a moral fight that has to be won, otherwise it is giving into evil. Um, Putin is not the source of all evil in the world. He's the source of a lot of destruction, but not of all evil. And Zelensky is not the source of everything that is good in the world. He is fighting a righteous in fight against Russian aggression, but Ukraine should also be held accountable for the mistakes they make in a war, for the crimes they commit in war, for the murders that they're involved in, if they are involved in them, just like Russia should. And we as the West should stop pretending that we're somehow in this war with uh, Ukraine together. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the continuous development in Ukraine. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I actually chose two related quotes um, from two American analysts. And I need to introduce this by saying that we've already done an episode on NATO. And if five years ago or ten years ago, you had a conference about NATO, there was a real question about why is NATO still there? What is the point of NATO? They were there to defend the West against potential Soviet aggression. Very well-oiled machine. Did that job very, very well. But in the 21st century, the Soviet Union is no longer there. Why is NATO still around, right? That's a valid question to ask. Now, with the invasion of Ukraine, it seems as if, the, as if NATO is legitimized, as if NATO can say, see, this is why we're here, to protect us all from once again the evil Russians, because our, our existence is there because there's something inherently bad about Russia. And as long as Russia exists, NATO needs to exist. The reality, however, is that NATO expansion and NATO actions have contributed are not necessarily responsible for, I'm just saying contributed before listeners get angry, contributed to an environment where Putin invaded Ukraine. And it's a little bit like if I have a neighbor who I don't like and I buy a gun pointing at my neighbor, don't get into my garden because otherwise I'll shoot at you. And my neighbor buys a gun and I buy a bigger gun and my neighbor buys a bigger gun and that escalates, escalates, then violence breaks out. And then we say, well, you see, I was justified to buy the gun in the first place. It was good to, 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 to protect ourselves. Rather than saying, hang on, if I hadn't bought that gun in the first place, maybe history would have been different. And so two Americans refer to this idea. First, uh, George Cannon, who was, an, who was an American diplomat and historian, 
and very knowledgeable about the Soviet Union in the 20th century, he said, the best thing we can do if you want Russians to let us be Americans is to let the Russians be Russian. And then later, Seymour Hersh, who is an American investigative journalist and a political writer, said, the day after 9-11, we should have gone to Russia. We did one thing that George Cannon warned us never to do, to expand NATO too far.